Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC's Critical Insights. My name is Jeff Scott, and I'm a partner in the litigation group and co-lead of SNC's securities litigation practice. I'm here with my litigation partners, Steve Pekin, former co-director of the SEC's Enforcement Division and lead of SNC's Securities and Commodities Investigations and Enforcement Practice, and Julia Malkina, co-lead of the firm's Securities Litigation Practice. Today, we'll discuss the priorities of the SEC's Enforcement Division and enforcement trends as reflected by the types and volume of enforcement actions recently brought. We will also offer some practice guidance concerning the handling of enforcement investigations in light of the SEC's recently announced priorities. In the midst of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the SEC continues to conduct investigations and bring enforcement actions. But not surprisingly, 2020 saw a notable decline in the number of SEC enforcement actions. For example, after the number of standalone enforcement actions increased each fiscal year from 2017 to 2019, the number declined in 2020. There were 405 standalone actions in 2020, the lowest number in recent years. In 2020, the three main categories of standalone enforcement actions were securities offering cases at 32%, investment advisor and investment company cases at 21%, and issue reporting and audit and accounting cases at 15%. Other notable categories were broker-dealer cases at 10%, insider trading cases at 8%, market manipulation cases at 5%, and public finance and FCPA cases at 5% combined. Despite the smaller number of enforcement actions, the SEC assessed a historic level of monetary remedies. In 2020, the SEC ordered approximately $3.59 billion in disgorgement and $1.09 billion in penalties for a total of $4.68 billion in financial remedies. This is the highest total ever. The median amount of money ordered by the SEC per case for 2020 was a little under $533,000, which is down slightly from the previous year when the median amount was a little over $554,000. But let's shift now from numerical trends in enforcement activity to the enforcement division's identified areas of enforcement focus. In its 2020 annual report, the enforcement division provided insight into areas of focus highlighting a number of areas. Let's begin with actions against entities. In 2020, the Enforcement Division continued to bring numerous enforcement actions against entities, including major financial institutions, automobile companies, telecommunication companies, and pharmaceutical companies. The Enforcement Division has also continued to focus on bringing enforcement actions against individuals, including corporate executives, accountants, and auditors. In 2020, 72% of the SEC's standalone actions included charges against at least one individual. Now, turning to a practice pointer, given the SEC's focus on holding both entities and individuals accountable, companies and their counsel should carefully consider representation issues throughout the life of an SEC investigation. Joint representation of a company and current or former employees when there are no conflicts of interest can offer advantages such as avoiding unnecessary legal expenses 
and providing counsel with a thorough understanding of all the issues presented in the matter. In some instances, however, it may be advisable for current or former employees to retain separate counsel. In these situations, companies should carefully consider indemnification obligations and joint defense and common interest agreements pursuant to which relevant information may be shared among the individuals and the company. Former Chairman Clayton and the Enforcement Division have made clear that protecting retail investors is a core principle of the SEC, and it remained an important Enforcement Division priority in 2020. The SEC brought numerous cases alleging misconduct directed at retail investors covering a broad range of conduct, including affinity fraud, accounting fraud, Ponzi schemes, pump and dump schemes, and technology-driven securities frauds. The Enforcement Division's Retail Task Force also continues to use data analytics to identify practices in the markets that harm retail investors. Now for a practice pointer. What can we learn from the Enforcement Division's laser focus on protecting retail investors? Well, as a result of this focus, the SEC will closely scrutinize operations, activities, and disclosures of investment managers, investment advisors, broker-dealers, auditors, issuers, and other public companies. Companies should evaluate prophylactic measures they can adopt to reduce the risk of exposure. Such measures can include ensuring the adequate, compliance and legal staffing, periodic review and revisions to policies, practices, and procedures to ensure best practices, implementing effective employee training about compliance and regulatory obligations, adoption of an effective whistleblower program, and careful review of public disclosures by experienced professionals. Consistent with its focus on protecting investors, Julia, the Enforcement Division created the Office of Bankruptcy Collections, Distributions, and Receiverships to return money to harmed investors. In the year 2020, the SEC returned more than $600 million to investors, comprising more than 800,000 payments from 91 fair funds and court-appointed administrators. The Enforcement Division also has continued to focus on accelerating the pace of its investigations. In the year 2020, the average amount of time between the SEC opening and investigation and filing an enforcement action was 24.1 months, the second fastest amount of time in the last five years, behind only 2019. The Enforcement Division also saw improvements in the pace of its more complex financial fraud and issuer disclosure cases, reducing the average time in those cases it takes to complete the investigation from 37 months in 2019 to 34 months in 2020. As you know, Jeff, in conjunction with accelerating the pace of its investigations, the SEC also continues to reward cooperation. In some instances, in an effort to provide greater transparency into its process for rewarding cooperation, the SEC has included detailed information in public orders concerning the cooperation efforts of settling parties, and it anticipates doing so in the future as well. Cooperation can take many forms, of course. Some examples are developing search terms and methods to identify relevant documents, helping the SEC procure testimony of former and current employees, making presentations to the SEC about relevant investigation topics, and voluntarily providing factual information relevant to the investigation. By offering such cooperation, an entity may be able to avoid or reduce potential charges and penalties in connection with an SEC matter. Here's a practice pointer. 
The SEC's stated focus on accelerating the pace of investigations creates opportunities for companies to cooperate with the SEC in an investigation. By engaging early with the staff, companies can provide context for the conduct at issue and give the SEC a better understanding of the facts. This information sharing may narrow this focus or even eliminate the need for an investigation or part of it. Companies can also offer the SEC ways to reduce the burdens associated with document requests and anticipated testimony. For example, companies can provide the SEC with a limited set of documents to establish certain facts rather than engage in a large-scale document production. They can allow the SEC to meet with relevant employees and provide letters to the SEC conveying substantive information instead of producing thousands or more of documents. Council should be aware of the risks associated with an accelerated investigation, including less time for factual development, and Council should be sure to provide the SEC with accurate information and appropriate caveats about the work that has been completed. Let's turn to recently enacted legislation. Responding to the Supreme Court's decisions in Kokesh v. SEC and Lou v. SEC, Congress passed legislation in early 2021 to amend Section 21D of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 to expand the SEC's ability to obtain disgorgement and other remedies. In Kokesh, the Supreme Court held that disgorgement bears all the hallmarks of a penalty and is therefore subject to the five-year limitations period in 28 U.S.C. 2462. Notably, the court expressly left open the question of whether courts possess authority to order disgorgement and SEC enforcement proceedings under the previous version of Section 21D. Three years later, in lieu, the Supreme Court answered the question left open by Kokesh, holding that disgorgement is a type of equitable relief that the SEC may obtain, but that disgorgement awards may not exceed the wrongdoer's net profits or include proceeds held by another or that are not intended to be returned to victim investors. The new amendments to Section 21D changed the law in three important ways. First, the new language expressly authorizes the SEC to seek and federal courts to order disgorgement for violations of the federal securities laws. Second, it increases the statute of limitations for claims by the SEC seeking disgorgement to five years from the latest date of a violation of those laws or 10 years in the case of scienter-based violations. And third, it provides that the SEC may seek a claim for any equitable remedy, including for an injunction or for a bar, suspension, or cease and desist order within 10 years of the latest date of a violation. These amendments apply to any SEC action or proceeding that is pending on or commenced after January 1st, 2021. The new provisions of Section 21D will enhance the SEC's ability to recover monetary and other remedies and are likely to lead to higher value resolutions and some enforcement actions. Although it remains to be seen how the SEC and courts will interpret the scope of these new provisions, the SEC may take the position that the significant limitations on the scope of permissible disgorgement that are set forth in lieu no longer apply. Additionally, the statute meaningfully enlarges the time period during which the SEC can reach back to seek disgorgement and other forms of relief. A practice pointer. Following the new amendments to Section 21D, the SEC will continue to seek disgorgement in its enforcement actions. It's important to keep in mind that the SEC will also continue to consider and pursue non-monetary relief. The Enforcement Division has stated that it will look to impose non-monetary relief, such as undertakings, 
and independent consultants to review a company's compliance with undertakings and policies and procedures where circumstances warrant. Entities should carefully evaluate whether to agree to such non-monetary relief. Although agreeing to such relief may reduce or eliminate penalties, companies should bear in mind that such relief, including recommendations by an independent consultant, may be expensive or burdensome to implement and could involve years of work. One way, potentially to avoid the imposition of undertakings or an independent consultant, is to remediate any identified issues during the pendency of the SEC investigation. Steve, let's switch gears to the SEC's highly successful whistleblower program. The program continued its strong growth in 2020, which was its 10-year anniversary. The commission reported that it was a record-breaking and momentous year for the program, with approximately $175 million in whistleblower awards made to 39 individuals, each of which was the largest amount in its history. Also in 2020, the SEC issued the largest number of final orders resulting in whistleblower awards, processed the most whistleblower claims, and received the highest number of whistleblower tips in a single fiscal year in the program's history. Now let's turn to a practice pointer here. The continued growth of the SEC's whistleblower program has important practical ramifications for companies. Companies should be alert to the possibility that a whistleblower has provided information to the SEC. Companies should take steps to make sure they understand all the relevant facts in an investigation so they can place in proper context any information provided to the SEC by a whistleblower. Companies should also adopt and implement a whistleblower program that effectively responds to internal tips and complaints so it can protect itself from criticism regarding its handling of such tips and complaints. Jeff, the SEC also revised the whistleblower program's rules in 2020. The revised rules create procedures to presumptively award the statutory maximum amount of 30% of monetary sanctions collected to meritorious claimants when the maximum award is less than $5 million. They also authorize awards for whistleblower information, leading to a deferred or non-prosecution agreement with the DOJ or settlement by the SEC outside of a judicial or administrative proceeding. The revised rules also require whistleblowers to submit written reports to the SEC to qualify for award program eligibility, as well as heightened confidentiality and anti-retaliation protections. They also create procedures that allow the SEC to permanently bar individuals from submitting frivolous or false award applications and to prevent duplicative awards if whistleblowers will also receive an award from another whistleblower program. And finally, the revised rules require a whistleblower to provide the SEC with evaluation, assessment, or insight beyond what would be reasonably apparent from publicly available information. Julia, let's turn to the SEC's recent digital asset offering cases. The SEC is closely scrutinizing so-called initial coin offerings to determine whether they are securities that require registration absent an applicable exemption from registration. Indeed, former Chairman Jay Clayton testified to Congress that he believed that every initial coin offering that he had seen met the definition of a security and that such offerings should be regulated like securities offerings. In three recent cases against Telegram, Kick, and Ripple Labs, the SEC alleged that the companies violated the federal securities laws through digital asset offerings that were neither registered nor exempt. Telegram settled with the SEC 
and agreed to return in disgorgement to investors $1.2 billion and to pay an $18.5 million civil penalty. Kick also settled with the SEC, agreeing to pay a $5 million penalty. Conversely, Ripple Labs is litigating the case against the SEC. It answered the SEC's amended complaint on March 4th, arguing that its digital assets are a virtual currency not subject to securities regulation, which securities regulators in the United Kingdom, Japan, and Singapore have also concluded. A practice pointer, we expect the SEC to continue to scrutinize whether digital assets constitute securities, which require filing a registration statement absent an applicable exemption. Prior to initiating offerings, companies should closely consider whether digital assets meet the definition of security and what position the SEC is likely to take on those offerings. It appears that the COVID-19 pandemic is having a significant impact on the SEC's enforcement priorities and likely will continue to have such an impact, at least in the short term. Let's talk briefly about some of the COVID-related developments for SEC enforcement. In March 2020, the SEC formed a coronavirus steering committee to coordinate the SEC's investigations related to an array of potential coronavirus-related wrongdoing. Composed of leaders from the Enforcement Division, the committee is tasked with identifying and monitoring areas of misconduct, ensuring appropriate allocation of SEC resources, coordinating the SEC's responses with those of other state and federal agencies, and ensuring consistency in the SEC's investigations and enforcement in COVID-related matters. For example, as a result of the committee's work in 2020, the SEC suspended trading and the securities of over 30 issuers due to concerns about the adequacy and accuracy of their COVID-related statements. The SEC has stated that although a trading suspension is not an enforcement action or a finding of wrongdoing, further investigation into potential wrongdoing may lead to an enforcement action in some cases. In July 2020, the Division of Corporation Finance issued additional guidance supplementing its previous March and April 2020 guidance. The July 2020 guidance urged companies to make disclosures that allow investors to evaluate the current and expected impact of COVID-19 through the eyes of management and to proactively revise and update disclosures as facts and circumstances change. The SEC has since reaffirmed that it will closely monitor companies' coronavirus-related disclosures and recommend actions against companies that make inadequate or misleading disclosures. So that's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www. For a more in-depth discussion of today's topics, take a look at our biannual Securities Enforcement and Litigation Update published this month and available on the Securities Litigation page of our website. Please also join Jeff, Julia, and me for our SNC's Critical Insights podcast on recent developments in private securities litigation, a recap on important trends that we're seeing in securities cases filed by private plaintiffs in federal and state courts.